Uh, last week, we're still in Acts 11, skipped ahead a little bit to Acts 13, because we're talking about the church in Antioch, and we talked about the end of cultural Christianity, which we're experiencing right now in the world, and are in a similar place to where the early church was uh, back in the time of Acts, uh, where you're not going to find uh, validation uh, for what the church teaches or what the church is doing um, uh, from the culture, necessarily. You'll find it in pockets. For instance, uh, when uh, Stephen and the others were set aside uh, as deacons, they were providing for the poor and the needy, and everybody really, really loved that. Uh, But the moment that Stephen began to preach, all bets were off. Uh, In fact, uh, that ultimately led uh, to uh, his death. But after the time of the uh, apostles, uh, when you get into the 4th century A.D., and uh, Christianity is tolerated, uh, one, and then later on becomes the actual official religion of, um, of uh, the Roman Empire. And the missionaries did it right. When they came into, when they evangelized England and uh, anywhere else, uh, who did they go witness to first? The king, right? Or whoever's in charge. Uh, whoever's in charge, and so what you would have happen uh, are these chieftains and these kings would become Christians, and then their household would convert to Christianity, whether they wanted to or not, and then, um, and then the kingdom would sort of fall into, uh, into uh, line. And so from the 5th century on uh, until really uh, the latter part of, um, or really the 19th century, Uh, the church had always enjoyed uh, preferment. And what I mean by that is that uh, the church and state uh, were uh, often linked arm in arm. And for most of Christianity, uh, the history of Christianity, it's very difficult to think of the church as apart from the state. Uh, They were always so closely linked, uh, so much so that... um, one of the uh, big issues that separated the Church of England from Rome was who had authority uh, in the realm of England. Uh, even, even church authority, not just temporal authority, but church authority. And Thomas Cranmer uh, believed that Henry VIII was divinely appointed to be king of England and therefore supreme governor of the church, and he ought to have say over what goes on uh, in the church. Now, we, we look back at that and think, That's kind of crazy. Uh, And yet, everybody pretty much believed that to an extent uh, in in Cranmer's day. There might have been nuances. If not not Henry VIII, well, then the Pope, uh, who was not, you know, today we've got Francis and before him John Paul II. And, um, you know, they ride around their, you know, they look like our grandfathers, right? You know, a little cute, little Pope mobile, and there they go. And uh, and Francis is doing some great things, uh, but really they're, they're seen as spiritual leaders, right? You've got to remember, uh, even in the days of uh, 15th, 16th century, and even in the 17th and 18th century uh, in, uh, in Europe, the Pope was not just a spiritual authority. Uh, he was an emperor of sorts. They had papal states. Um, they, he ruled a, a vast and, and great kingdom, uh, and so... Uh, his, his authority was not just uh, spiritual, uh, but it was temporal as well. And so for much of the church, there was no distinction made between uh, church and state. And then all of a sudden, 
uh, the 19th, well, that doesn't mean that the church was always very strong and that people always listened to the church. In 18th century Britain, things were in a real bad way, uh, spiritually speaking, and that's what gave rise to the Wesleyan revivals is because the church was just impotent uh, to to reach the masses, to reach people where uh, they were. If they were preaching anything, it was sort of, you know, you need to be good, upstanding model citizens. That's what you need to be. And so the gospel message of what Jesus has done for his people had been totally lost, almost. Uh, and a sort of new reformation came in uh, through the ministry of Wesley and Whitfield uh, and others. And then into the 19th century, uh, even as uh, what we now call evangelicalism uh, started uh, by the Wesleys and Whitfield and, and the rest of them was on, in its ascendance, uh, so was higher critical thinking in Germany uh, uh, regarding uh, the Bible. Uh, no, almost nobody, and it was impossible to find anybody really before the 19th century who said, I don't believe that there is a God. There was no such thing as an atheist. It just one didn't exist. Uh, in fact, um, you would have people who had their suspicions about Jesus and, and even the nature of God, like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson acknowledged that there was some sort of moral authority and power out there, and uh, he was sort of the main dean uh, of, of our spiritual lives, and he's to be feared, but he's way over there, and we're here, and really he doesn't interact with us on, in our everyday lives. He sort of winds up the world and lets it work itself out like a clock, and uh, he's not personal. And yet, uh, it would be very hard to find somebody who would say, point blank, I don't believe that there is a God. But with higher critical thinking coming in from Germany in the 19th century, especially the latter part of the 19th century, all of a sudden now you do have people who, uh, who are saying, you know, I I'm not sure uh, that there is a God. And of course, that exacerbated in England at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th with what? World War I. World War I, and just the carnage that wrought uh, in England. And, uh, and that really uh, shook people up because that was one of the first wars where there was actual media coverage, uh, newspapers. And it's, um, it's so funny. I mean, I learned in school what started World War I. Archduke Ferdinand, remember him? He was there, he was, and where, Sarajevo or someplace like that, and just kind of kicking it along, and then somebody shot him. And, uh, and what is... Uh, and then a huge war erupted. And for the first time, people in England started to say, now, wait a minute. Why are we, why are we fighting this war? And especially because who was the Kaiser of Germany? Queen Victoria's grandson, right? Their cousin uh, was, uh, they were going to war against. And so with that, all of a sudden, people began to question intellectually God and his place uh, in this world, especially the authority uh, of, of the Bible. And... What you'll see in Europe especially now, and most of, I can speak to England personally, is that the church today and much of the culture lives looking in the rearview mirror. They live looking in the rearview mirror. And this is what I mean by that. When I went, uh, when I was over there, it was the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. When, um, when uh, Nelson... Uh, his fleet defeated the Napoleonic Navy, and uh, they were going to do a full-scale reenactment in Portsmouth. I mean, ships of the line, same formations, uh, and so I, I went down, I had my little formation map so that I could see, because I'm a nerd like that, and, and see what was going on, and um, 
When I got down there, they handed a brochure. It was packed out on the, on the shore, and out were these beautiful ships. And I was looking at the brochure that they handed out, the program, and I was looking out on the water, and if I hadn't had my map, I wouldn't know who was who because there was no Royal Navy. There was no Napoleonic Navy. In the brochure, it said, the Blue Navy and the Red Navy. And I thought, wow. Uh, when you live looking in the rearview, there's this thing in Europe uh, about uh, empire guilt, um, victory, guilt over victory, and guilt over strength, uh, that they even felt they needed to make an apology for something that was completely and totally obvious. Right At the end of this great battle, Somebody wins, whether it's the blue or the red navy. You know who's, who's going to win, but they just felt so guilty uh, about it that um, England uh, and much of Europe has all but forgotten their past uh, because they can't separate the good from the bad, so they all lump it in together, and that's exactly what's happened in the church. Right? So now what you see is the church is viewed as an arm of the state for social services, to administer schools, uh, to do good and wonderful charitable things, which it, it ought to do. Uh, and yet, uh, when it comes to uh, taking the gospel, which is originally what it was meant to do, taking the gospel into uh, the world and the culture in the parish church being the center of village life, uh, those days are gone. In fact, now in England, they won't say that's the parish hall or that's the parish church. They now call the parish hall the community hall. Uh, in order to differentiate it from having any attachment to the church, even though it's literally attached to the church. Uh, and so there's a little bit of this, the emperor has no clothes going on uh, in Europe. Uh, and so because of all of that baggage, a lot of people look at um, the church in the same way they look at their past history, some of it very grievous, uh, the exploitation of the continent of Africa by colonial powers. Uh, or uh, whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, and so people will see the church and the state as one of the same, and they really want nothing to do with either one of them. Right? There's nothing that, that the church could possibly uh, offer me, unless, of course, it is, um, unless it is something that will help me live uh, a more comfortable, uh, nicer, quieter life. Right. So there has to be some sort of advantage to interacting with the church. Well, this is exactly the same place that the early church found itself. I mean, when people look at it, they, do, they see it as other. They're not exactly sure what, uh, what to make of it. Uh, they're apprehensive about it. Uh, they're nervous about it. Uh, and even in our culture, uh, I just think it's always so interesting uh, when I go to cocktail parties and things like that, and, um, and uh, like the first thing out of their mouths are like, well, our church attendance hadn't been that good. You know, like immediately they feel like they need to make an apology for not coming to church. Or better yet, when they go up to Lauren and they're like, oh, you know, how, it, well, they'll come up to her and they'll say, oh, where do you go to church? And, and, uh, and they'll say, the Advent. And Lauren will say, oh, I do too. And they're like, oh, really? Who are you? And, uh, or better yet, <laughs> literally, the, uh, uh, the Sunday after my institution as dean, somebody came up to me and they said, well, welcome to Birmingham, and we hope that you adjust really well. It seems like you've settled in in just a short amount of time. I said, I've been here three years. Um, um, 
and, and so, uh, one, let me just say, uh, we don't keep it. I'll tell you when we do keep attendance. Um, if you sit in the same exact spot every single Sunday, I, I'll start to notice if you're not there. Because I do. I kind of look out. I know where people... And it, every once in a while, if I get thrown off, it's because you're not sitting in your usual spot. I'm thinking... And I can see how grumpy you are that somebody else sat in your spot. And... Um, so, um, so we don't take attendance, but I do notice if you sit in the same spot, uh, and there are all these little expectations, like uh, I won't name names, but the kids that sit in the front row, if they don't drop something in the middle of the service over the, th I, think, uh, I think, what happened? Something went wrong, because uh, I'm used to it. Uh, th there's no need to get uh, insecure or to be super spiritual and, and, and holy uh, around uh, the priests uh, of the Advent. Uh, in fact, uh, there is, you know, that's a, that's a fine line that, that people will tread. Uh, in seminary, I, I had a seminary professor say to me, the most important thing to your people is your holiness. And I just thought, oh no. Uh, <laughs> I, I hear what he's saying. I mean, yes. Um, especially the ordained clergy of all people, ought to be modeling what a Christian life looks like. But when I start talking about things like holiness, what do you think I'm talking about? Somebody else. So, yeah, th thank you, David. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it just, you know, opening, you know, uh, helping little old ladies across the street. Um, you know, I mean, sort of this idea of, of the clergy, which gives, you know, the joke in seminary too, was that there are actually three genders, Masculine, feminine, and clergy. Uh, and uh, and this, this sort of rise of the milk toast uh, clergy, rather than uh, you know, the extreme uh, dynamism of, uh, of the early uh, church and certainly uh, throughout the history of the church, whether it was wedded to the state uh, or, or not. But people have crazy ideas about how they ought to interact with the church, how they ought to interact with other Christians, and especially in, uh, in the South, uh, where where you go to church is just part of a cocktail party conversation. It's asked in the same vein as where do you work or where are you from? Uh, and so everybody has some sort of church affiliation regardless uh, of, their, uh, of their attendance. Uh, there they are. So uh, our attendance uh, at the Advent uh, during the school year is about 1,200. That's how many people come to church here. But our uh, membership is 3,600. Uh, now, most of them show up on Easter or Christmas Eve, uh, and so, and, and I, I'm, I'm frankly uh, glad to see them. Uh, but uh, there clearly is a, a three, uh, a, you know, a 2,000 person uh, gap between those who would claim membership uh, and those who don't. And so, this insecurity, uh, because they don't know what to do uh, with the Christian faith, because the, most people have an idea of the Christian faith is that it's some supplement that you add to your life in order to make it better. Right? It helps make you a better, well-rounded uh, individual. Uh, it's helpful when it's helpful, and it's not when it's not. It's there when you need it, uh, and, uh, and certainly uh, just the reticence. You know, When someone's going through a tragedy and they say, well, I really didn't feel like... I, I, I could call you because I haven't been in church for a long time. I thought, you're exactly who needs to call me. All the people who call me and want to meet with me are the people that don't need to meet with me. Uh, everybody else is the people who need, the people who are insecure about meeting with me are the people I need to meet with. So and that doesn't apply to any of you like Clay. Uh, Clay, I need to meet with you. So, uh, so, but in America, it's a little bit different because we don't have the baggage that Europe does, and yet there is this growing sense 
of secularism and the church as, as other. And again, this toleration of the church, which is such a funny word when people say, well, toleration. I, I don't know about you, but I don't like anybody saying, I tolerate you. <laughs> or, uh, I'll, you know, we will tolerate you. I, you know, that's such a, you know, tolerate such a funny word. And what it really means is uh, we acknowledge your right to exist, uh, but it kind of ends there, right? You can have your opinions, but just talk to people who agree with you uh, about, about those, uh, those types of things on a, on a myriad of issues, whether it's uh, the other day somebody was getting wound up with me because I, um, uh, I'm really uh, supportive of these moves to shut down uh, payday lenders and, um, and the astronomical interest that they're charging people that are ruining uh, people's lives and uh, how the current laws are being broken and how, how we can go about enforcing those and what can the church do uh, to help um, uh, those communities. And, uh, and this person said, yeah, that's not really the church's business. You've got to leave it to the banks. I'm like, look, I'm a big fan of the banks, but the banks own the payday lending company. So I, I didn't want to really get into that. But um, be that as it may, this person was saying, look, you're entitled to your opinion, but, you know, just back off. Just back off. Just, you know, don't, don't involve yourself or we don't think uh, you uh, belong. And yet what we find... Uh, in the local church. And when the Bible talks about the church, it talks about the local church and it talks about the church universal, uh, the church Catholic. And in that, uh, you see in the local church uh, an overwhelming sense of urgency and mission to the world. And not just its own local community, uh, but indeed the whole world. So remember, it was in Antioch, these uh, Hellenistic uh, Gentile, very diverse congregation that most of the, well, I shouldn't say most, but a good chunk of the church in Jerusalem thought ought not to be a part of the church at all. That church was sending the church in Jerusalem money uh, in the midst of the famine. Uh, they were the ones who were reaching out to them saying, look, you, you, know, you may, uh, may not be happy uh, that we're not uh, of the circumcision party or that we're not circumcised or that we're not keeping kosher, uh, but... Um, but you're our brother and sister in Christ, and so we're going to help uh, support you. And not just that, but they were sending out missionaries. And they sent out Paul and uh, Barnabas uh, to go out on mission uh, to take uh, the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. And this church was only, well, how old was it? It was just, what, two years old? Maybe. Max. Uh, and yet, here's this young church taking the gospel uh, out into the world. And this church had an emphasis on preaching and teaching. Indeed, in Acts chapter 13, it says, now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. And then it goes on to list uh, the diverse characters that make up that. And, um, you know, I find that uh, often in my role as a priest, uh, more often than not, it's to, to comfort the afflicted. Uh, but sometimes you have to afflict the comforted. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's not a role that I relish. Uh, the prophets uh, even struggled with it in, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. You see people like John the Baptist. Um, uh, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of joy uh, in bringing a hard word to people. So when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, uh, what did he do? I'm out of here. Now, the opposite was actually true of Jonah because God wanted Jonah to bring a word of grace uh, to, to the people of Nineveh. And then Jonah got mad that the people of Nineveh repented. Uh, he was kind of hoping God would knock it out. 
but instead, he said, I knew that this would happen, um, and, and rightfully so. So with uh, the role of, these, of this preaching and, and teaching, uh, it was unlike anything that they had ever heard. It was when they interacted with Jesus. It was when they interacted with the apostles. Uh, they couldn't believe the power with which they were preaching and teaching, and of course, because they were under the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Acts 1.8, uh, when Jesus says to them, uh, you will receive power to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Uh, the Greek word that, Paul, that uh, Luke uses is uh, dunamis, uh, which is where we get the English word for dynamite, right? Explosive power, uh, shaking uh, power, things that uh, get uh, your attention. Uh, in fact, as a young child, I, I, I found out that um, uh, you only need a little bit of dynamite um, in, in order to do uh, anything. Um, and uh, we got in a big trouble once for filling a coffee cup full of gunpowder and throwing it to the wood stove. Uh, and uh, everybody was fine. Everybody was fine. It was a little smoky, uh, but it was fine. Uh, but uh, we would, um, we had those little M80s, and it's amazing what those things could do, uh, really. Uh, and so even, uh, you know, that's just kind of a little, you know, a little thing. I'm not advocating anything, uh, but uh, that's just a little thing. Uh, but what the Bible is talking about when it comes to dunamis is this, you know, sort of, you know, I always get very worried when I drive through those construction sites and say, turn your cell phones off. Uh, because your cell phone could set the charges off. Uh, how many of you actually turned it off? None of you. Uh, none of you. But if you were just driving along and all of a sudden that charge went off, um, that would be rather startling, wouldn't it? It would make you stop and look uh, as to what's going on. And in fact, you'd probably stand uh, in awe of what had just occurred. And that's what the Bible is talking about with the word uh, of, of God, that it is... Uh, it's like dynamite, and when this message of the gospel uh, is preached, uh, people actually stop and, and listen. When Mike Hill was here, he and I were talking about uh, Bristol, and Bristol, England, is where John Wesley, for the first time, preached in the open air. And uh, in England in the 1700s, this was unheard of. Nobody did it. It was scandalous. Uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, and George Whitfield loved to do it, and Wesley said, gosh, I, I really can't do it, but fewer and fewer people were letting Wesley preach from their pulpits. And so he went uh, to this hill uh, there in uh, Bristol, England, and began to preach. And people in the thousands uh, would, would come to hear him. And now you might say, well, that's the 1700s, you know, they didn't have anything else to do, and it was kind of a, you know, they didn't have... But, but spiritually speaking, you know, just when you think that we're in the worst possible shape we could be in in our world today, uh, read what was going on right before the Wesleyan revivals. I mean, just the, how awful it was, the hostility toward the church and Christianity. Um, uh, any, you know, even though every preacher was preaching morality, it succeeded in making everybody pretty immoral. Uh, and so the, it, was, it was in some ways much, much worse uh, than, uh, than today. And so it was in the midst of that that when Wesley stands up and begins to preach, it was like dynamite. People began to have their lives shaken to the very core simply because he let the Word of God do uh, its, its work. And Wesley, uh, as well as uh, much of the church, the church really 
was actually, if you want to look at the periods of Christianity when it was really beginning to thrive and was vibrant and people were coming to know the Lord, uh, are periods when what is the hallmark? Persecution, right? Persecution. Uh, so it's a little, you know, uh, the, uh, to, uh, the blood of the martyrs waters the church uh, is what is often said. Uh, and so it's in that witness when the church presents something that is different than the way that the culture does things. A, a message that is radically different about human existence and, and identity and uh, affirmation and uh, who we are and, and what makes us what we are, our life's calling. Uh, because the church presents such a radically different uh, opinion on that, when, it's, when that is stark, People are attracted to it. Now, when it gets colluded with, with the culture, uh, it, it, uh, it gets trickier. So uh, N.T. Wright, who was um, a chaplain uh, in Oxford uh, at a college, he became the Bishop of Durham and now is teaching again at Edinburgh University. And um, he said that he finally developed this little routine because students would come in and plop themselves down and say, I just want you to know that I don't believe in God. And uh, Wright started to respond by saying, um, well, tell me what kind of God you think exists, and I probably won't believe in him either. Uh, and, uh, and that's true, because if you really start to tease out, even people that have grown up uh, in the midst of cultural Christianity, they learn just enough to be dangerous. Uh, and, and so uh, when you start to tease that out and say, well, tell me who God is, uh, you begin to hear about a God who is radically different uh, from the God of the Bible. And so when you begin to present, well, actually, why don't we take a look at what the Bible has to say about that? You can still disagree with it. It's a free country. Uh, but let's not make the mistake uh, of assuming that, uh, that we can make God in our own image. One way or the other. Uh, one way or the other. And there is a danger, and you saw this in the church, especially in the Middle Ages, uh, there is a danger of looking for cultural affirmation and even accommodation uh, from, uh, from the state. Uh, that really was one of the things that, uh, that prompted uh, Luther to get involved, were, was that the, the church had basically bought in lock, stock, and barrel uh, with what was going on in the state. And uh, rather than standing over against it and actually sometimes speaking truth to power and saying, absolutely not, uh, no. And, uh, and uh, when uh, they were selling indulgences, uh, which really got Martin Luther pretty fired up, uh, when they were selling these indulgences, uh, you actually, if you've ever been to Rome, you've seen, uh, you've seen the benefit of the indulgences. You've seen what the indulgences created. Do you know what, what the money from indulgences went to? St. Peter's. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel. It paid, paid Leonardo to get his work done. Um, so, uh, and, and Luther and others stood up and said, no. And of course, uh, immediately, uh, the, uh, the response uh, to Luther, as has been uh, throughout many of the years, is uh, if you're not quiet, uh, we'll kill you. Uh, we'll kill you. And, uh, and we say, you know what, that's extreme, uh, but that's happening uh, in the world even today, uh, where people who uh, say, look, uh, I cannot keep silent. The word of God is like dynamite. You can't just put it under a, a bushel basket, but, but here it is. And uh, my life 
uh, is rooted in the Word of God because of what God has done in my life, uh, then, then trouble is, is sure to come. I mean, you look at the people in the Middle East right now and in northern Nigeria and elsewhere who all they have to do is renounce their faith in Jesus and they can live. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not so self-righteous um, to think that I wouldn't consider, you know what I mean? I mean, just what you would think, I, I, would, I would rationalize it. I'd say, well, you know, if, if I renounce faith but I keep my fingers crossed, you know, then I can sort of be an underground Christian and, and, and be an influence for the good. Uh, but I would know why I would s- renounce my faith. It's to save my hide. Uh, and yet here are people who are boldly uh, saying, uh, Jesus has never, ever forsaken me. And no matter what you do to me, he won't forsake me now. I mean, that's a powerful witness, and it's not craziness, uh, but it's an ultimate trust and confidence in the otherness of God um, that, uh, that the world uh, needs to know about. The other thing, though, in dealing with the world is that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the world's mind is veiled to the gospel, and that is they simply can't see a thing as it is. They can't see things as they actually are in real life. And so oftentimes trying to talk about the gospel, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, I have, where you think you're doing a pretty good job of clearly articulating the gospel, uh, and you probably are, but it's, it's like they're listening to a different person. Right? They, they, they're, they're thinking, what? Uh, what are you saying? What are you talking about? Uh, and, and even our own hearts, uh, Lord, uh, we believe, help us in our unbelief. So, for instance, uh, I'm a Christian. I don't know if you knew that. I am. And, uh, and uh, I believe in justification by grace through faith. And yet, every single day, I struggle about my justification. What justifies me? So, when uh, I have class packed out one week, and, uh, and I leave thinking, well, praise the Lord. Uh, and then the next week, it's not as packed. I think, why don't they love me? Uh, and I, mean, t- I mean, that's crazy, and I know it's crazy. Um, uh, but, uh, but you see, we all have this sort of ingrained sense of works righteousness uh, that, that, we can't, uh, that we can't avoid. And so even in our own struggles, how much more so uh, for those who have something like blinders on that actually can't see uh, a thing as it is, unless God himself removes those blinders and opens their eyes and heart to the gospel. Now, we never know when that's going to happen. We don't. Um, in fact, uh, uh, we should be diligent in our witness uh, with, with every person. Uh, I make the mistake sometimes of thinking, this person is that close to becoming a Christian. And then they never do. Uh, and then the guy down the street who paints his fingernails black and wears a dog collar uh, shows up in church on Sunday saying, I love Jesus. And you're like, what? Uh, you, you, just never, uh, you just never, ever know uh, how, what God is going to use, uh, how God is going to act, what God is going to do uh, in the life of the individual. Uh, and yet he chooses us in his mercy uh, in 2 Corinthians 4 as jars of clay uh, to minister his, his word. In fact, this is so important, being rooted in the word and taking this dynamite uh, out, that when St. Paul writes Timothy in his second epistle, it's the last thing that Paul writes. And if you've ever read it, it's actually incredibly moving. 
Uh, it's, it's Paul's final words uh, to the person who was closest to him uh, in his life. And so in, in his last words, what is it? Uh, think about it yourself. If, if you had uh, a couple pages of parchment and you were writing to your children uh, or your spouse, uh, what would you want to convey to them? What would you want them to know? And this is what Paul wants Timothy uh, to know. Uh, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. That's a fun, fun uh, thing for me to talk about with my daughters. Weak women. <laughs> but, uh, so you, he says, you, however, Timothy, Followed, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, Timothy, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Well, um, these, these final words to Timothy really sum up what St. Paul's life uh, was completely about. And even early on in, uh, in chapter 3 that I just read, it sounds a little bit hard. He enumerates all these things. They said they're going to go from bad to worse. And yet Paul's response was never, was never ever. Now when he says walk, have nothing to do with them, he's talking about people who are in the church who are causing problems. But when he's looking at the world, never once in St. Paul's ministry uh, did he not go into a place uh, rooted in the word of God and out of that compassion and gentleness and having a heart for even the people who wanted him dead but actually going to all of these people who are all of these things and not looking at them with some sort of sense of self-righteousness or triumph or, or betterness, uh, but with love and compassion and mercy and simply putting the otherness of the Word of God out there uh, for them uh, to, uh, to see. Now, um, uh, some of y'all may uh, have heard this story about two weeks ago uh, in Pakistan, uh, there were two church bombings. Uh, one was a Roman Catholic church, and the other was an Anglican church uh, and, um, outside of Lahore. And, um, of course, and um, 
what happened in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the bombers went in and then um, uh, they detonated the bomb and 15 people died in, in that church. Uh, they were uh, Al-Qaeda militants. And then uh, the other bomber made his way to the Anglican Church and uh, knowing that something was wrong, uh, the senior warden of the church, uh, whose name is Zahid Yusuf Goga, and here he is, uh, pictured with his wife and kids. Uh, you see him right? Let's, let's make this better. Uh, there he is, pictured uh, with his wife and kids. Um, uh, uh, tackled him. Uh, and the bomb went off, but because of tackling him and keeping him in the narthex, uh, nobody died uh, in the church that day. But of course, uh, his own life uh, was, was taken. Um, and so, I mean, here's somebody, uh, you know, that some people might say is nobody. Uh, in that church, there were uh, about 600 Christians worshiping. Uh, and because of this man's faith in Jesus, uh, they lived to tell the story, not just his story, uh, but the story of another one who laid down his life for even his enemies. And uh, it would be very easy for these churches to just put up walls and to say, you know what, you're trying to blow us up, forget it. And yet I I'm just amazed by the courage of the church in Pakistan and the church uh, in Iraq who uh, has not put up walls uh, but have been militant in their own right by taking the gospel outside of their walls to even those who would have them dead. Uh, and that, that's the power of, uh, of the word in the church and how God has uh, poured his Holy Spirit uh, even into this place. And so if we're looking for cultural accommodation, forget it. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not going to come. Uh, uh, even when we enjoyed it, uh, maybe it wasn't the best for us. Uh, but now we have the opportunity uh, to present real choices uh, to the people in the world by saying, uh, behold uh, this man Jesus, uh, a man of sorrows, uh, but a man of great triumph uh, over death and the grave uh, who was slain for you uh, from the foundations of the world. Questions, comments, concerns? Okay. All right, thanks for bearing with me, y'all. I'm a little bit frazzled. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You started off talking about the, the moral authority, and it reminded me of Mark Twain's book on the, the mysterious stranger, in which he takes the position that the difference between human beings and all the rest of the critters is a moral authority. And Satan is per per portrayed as this uh, benign creature out here that just laughs at what we do with our moral authority. Right. Um, I just find that is a corollary, sort of what, what you're talking about, that, that, that those guys, the chief priests that uh, in their moral authority decided to crucify Jesus. Right. And they, they were all, it always ends up being short-sighted in what the consequences are going to be. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, that's a hard thing. It, and, I mean, especially in discerning uh, 
you know, discerning what is God leading us to, what is God calling us to. I mean, there were certainly stories of martyrs in the church where there would be these Christians in the arena, and you wouldn't say, look at those Christian witnesses, and that, but you'd actually say, they're asking for it. I mean, they would almost intentionally try to get themselves martyred, um, rather uh, drawing attention to themselves and not to the Lord Jesus. And so I think that that's also something, too, that uh, in the witness of the church, um, everything ought to point to Him. Everything ought to point to Him. If it begins to point to ourselves, there's something wrong with it. It might be good, but we've corrupted it, if you know what I mean. Okay. Well, on that light, uh, light note, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.